Hey friends, it is so good to be here in sunny California. What a gift. <laughs> is it usually this hot in Portland? Is this really strange? Is this like, it's strange, all right. We have a saying in our church that I started saying maybe 10 years ago. I say it at our kind of new members gatherings and people who are new to our church, our newcomers events, our lunches. I say enter at your own risk when you come into this community because we're gonna invite you to go places and ask questions that might be very difficult for you. And so tonight, we should have put a sign in the front, Tyler, enter at your own risk. Because to talk about matters of race is, is to poke a principality. It's to wrestle with what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. So I want to read a passage of scripture out of 2 Corinthians. And then um, kind of lay out in some ways what does it mean for us to take the next step in our own lives in this particular area of spiritual formation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. I love N.T. Wright has said that it's often translated, if anyone's in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. And that can be such a... Um, self-oriented and human-oriented way of thinking about that verse. But the better translation is, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Something has happened. Something has broken in. A new reality is before us. New creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Jesus, breathe on us. Give us everything we need tonight. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to receive it all. We pray this in your name. Amen. Langston Hughes, the great African-American poet, wrote a poem entitled Tired. And his words were, I am so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. I love that poem because Hughes names what we ache for, what we long for, goodness, beauty, kindness. And his approach to discovering the goodness and the beauty and the kindness that God wants to reveal in the world is not going to happen unless we cut the world in two. But when Hughes talks about cutting the world in two, he's not talking about language of division. He's talking about language of depth. That we can't see the world and move the world towards goodness and beauty and kindness until we're able to look beneath the surface of our lives and beneath the surface of our culture to find the places of rot, 
to find the places of sin, to find the places where powers and principalities are at work. And what we're doing tonight is trying to move the world and move the church towards goodness and beauty and kindness, but it's not going to come unless we live in truth and ask the hard questions, unless we're able to go beneath the surface of our lives to explore what Jesus invites us to do. And I believe the beauty of the reconciliation gospel is available to us within the community and outside the community. I've seen it in different places in my own life. I grew up in a neighborhood in Brooklyn, the real Brooklyn. Um, um, I love Tyler. Um, Tyler wasn't from the real Brooklyn. I'm from the real Brooklyn, East New York, Brooklyn. I would take my clothes to a Korean-owned dry cleaners on a regular basis. My, well, my parents would send me on assignment to do that. And in order to get the clothes over to them for them to do their thing, there is this massive bulletproof partition that separated the customer from the owner of the dry cleaners. And in order to get them the stuff, you had to like open up a chute and then go through a gate and then do a cartwheel and then go, all right, here's my shirt. Can you help me out? I did that for a number of years. I became a Christian at 19 years of age. And a couple of years later, I brought my shirt to that same dry cleaners. And I was stunned because... That bulletproof partition that had been up there for many decades was taken down. And so I thought I was in the wrong place, and so I walked back out, kind of looked up, and came back in. And I started having a conversation with the owner, Korean-American man, and I discovered that he was a follower of Jesus. And I said, I've been coming here all my life. I lived in this neighborhood for 34 years. I, I've been coming here all my life. Why did you take down this partition? And his response very simply was, because we want to build trust with our neighbors. And I couldn't help but to think that the power of God was at work in that Korean-owned dry cleaners on Pitkin Avenue and Essex Street. The gospel was breaking in in what seemed to be an insignificant way and light of the scope of our world, but in my neighborhood, something was at work. The gospel was breaking in. I said on Sunday that the cross is not just a, sledge, a bridge that gets us to God, it's a sledgehammer that tears down walls that separate us. And that's what we are invited into this evening, a barrier-breaking gospel, which reminds me of our definitions of the gospel. I, I mentioned that our definition of the gospel, our understanding of the gospel, will always determine the nature and the scope of our mission. That is a true, our understanding of the gospel will always determine the nature and the scope of our mission. And so if the gospel is the good news, and this is what I believe the gospel is, is the good news that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ. It's radically accessible to us. The kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ and that in his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement, he has been made king. And sin and death no longer have the last word. 
And this inbreaking kingdom of God is available to us right this very moment as we participate with Jesus. And so the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's good news. The good news of the gospel is that the primary fruit of this gospel is that a new humanity, a new family is established. The fruit of the gospel is that all things are being made new. Our understanding of the gospel will always determine the nature and the scope of our mission. And so to talk about matters of race and reconciliation across all ways, I mean, when I talk about reconciliation at New Life, we talk about bridging racial, cultural, economic, and gender and generational barriers, reconciliation across the board. And when I talk about reconciliation, I want you to keep in mind all of those elements of reconciliation. I believe there's that six ways that we have to think about this. We can't have a responsible conversation about the nature of race until we talk about it on at least six levels. And this is, these are my categories to talk about this. That we have to talk about it theologically. We have to talk about it historically. We have to talk about it sociologically, politically, ecclesiologically, and formationally. And what I mean by that is really essentially that. What does, what does Scripture say? What is the overarching uh, arc, uh, uh, trajectory of Scripture as it relates to this new humanity? How do we run to Scripture and allow God to shape us through that? How do we understand history? And this is fraught with all kinds of complexity. When you look at what's going on in the world, there are lots of folks who don't want to talk about history. I think about what's happening in places like Florida right now. People don't want to talk about history and how we have been shaped by the past and how that past continues to show up today. But unless we are talking about how we've been shaped and where we've been, we can't really have an honest conversation about this conversation here. We have to talk about it sociologically. What kind of analysis? What's, uh, wh wh where is there truth to be found? And wherever there is truth, God is there. Because God only dwells in truth. The only place God does not dwell, the omnipresent God, is in illusion. And if we give ourselves to illusion, we now distance ourselves from the presence of God because God does not dwell in illusion. God does not dwell in deception. God does not dwell in lies. God only dwells in truth. And so to what degree can our sociological analysis, I'm not saying it is the place where we to always go, but how can it help us understand our current moment? Politically, what are the implications of this in terms of policy? I'm not talking about partisanship. I'm not talking about who you vote for. But I'm talking about how do we think about the ways that society is organized in ways that often give advantage to some and disadvantage to others. How are we thinking about the ways that policy, and policy is important because policy impacts people, and God loves people. And so the ways we think about how the world is ordered is really important and takes discernment, but it takes a conversation and it takes us entering into those spaces. Ecclesiologically, how should the church respond in its mission, in its identity, what are the things that we talk about on Sundays? What are the things that we talk about in our small groups? What are we praying about? In our mission and in our identity, we have to talk about it ecclesiologically and formationally. 
And that is to say, what kind of emotional and spiritual life is required to actually bear witness to Jesus? And so I'm going to start at number six. Because I'm convinced that if we don't get the formation part right, we're going to have a hard time doing anything else. If we don't cultivate an emotional and spiritual capacity to navigate through the terrain of racial reconciliation, racial injustice, and all the rest, we're going to have a hard time making a dent in any other area in our lives. And so when I think about formation, there are a few questions that come to mind. Questions like, what does it mean to stay connected? Questions like, how can we hold space with one another? Questions like, how can we resist the emotional and relational cutoffs that seemingly mark the entire world? How can I move close to people who have a very different vision of what human flourishing looks like? Do I have what it takes to listen deeply and to offer a calm presence to those who don't see the world as I do? And so at the core of this formational category is this growing capacity and this growing ability to grow as a calm presence. And when I talk about being a calm presence, I'm talking about remaining close and curious to God, close and curious to others, and close and curious to myself in times of high anxiety. And resisting the polar opposite pull of cutting people off or being enmeshed into them. When anxiety surfaces, and we all have anxiety, friends, anxiety to be human is to be anxious. Anxiety is very simply an automatic response to a real or perceived threat. And we all respond in various ways, whether that's through excessive worry or whether that's through manipulation and control, whether that's through anger or whether that's through avoidance. We all have anxiety coursing through our bodies. And the question is, what do we do with it? For some of you right now, you might be feeling anxiety. What are you doing with it? And the, temp the temptation for us is to either go in one way or another, to cut off or to disappear and be, and be enmeshed into others. You know... It reminds me, in, in, in 1997, I worked at Sony Theaters in Manhattan, 68th Street and Broadway. It was my first job. And um, I loved working there. I got people in for free all the time. I don't think I was supposed to do that. And everybody got popcorn and um, M&Ms. I mean, I was really going overboard here. And... and one of the things I loved about working there is beyond meeting like celebrities, and I, I served Harrison Ford popcorn one day. It was, like, amazing. And Mike Myers, I, I was watching Austin Powers next to Mike Myers, and that was awesome. And, um, but I loved, I loved music, and, and so there was music always playing in the theaters. And I could tell you just about every song that came out in 1997, okay? Every song that came out in 1997, as a matter of fact, when I'm driving in the car and a song comes out that was from 1997, I look at my children, I look at my wife, I go, do you know what year this song came out? <laughs> Tell us, Dad. 1997. That's right. 1997. In 1997, there was a song that came out by Leanne Rimes. Do you know Leanne Rimes here? Yeah. <laughs> she... She wrote a song called, How Do I Live Without You? Oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> How do I live without you? I want to know. 
How do I live? If you ever go. <laughs> How do I ever? Yeah, it's just glorious, isn't it? Glorious. Now, Leanne, that, that song is either one or two things. It's really romantic and beautiful, and it's language of enmeshment. How do I breathe without you? You're going to be okay, all right? You're going to be okay. <laughs> and so when we're having hard conversations and anxiety surfaces, it's very easy to disappear and, and to be enmeshed into others. And, and so that's one road that some of us go down. But then 20 years later, after this tremendous song, Selena Gomez came out with a song called Cut You Off. <laughs> So I got to get you out of my head now. I, I just cut you off. You out of my head now. I just cut you off. When I'm without you, I don't overthink it. I just carry on. Get you out of my head now. I just cut you off. And what happens in our culture is when anxiety surfaces, we either go down the road of enmeshment, we disappear. We don't raise our voice. Our values are not named. Or we cut people off. We avoid. As a matter of fact, you want to know where anxiety surfaces? Just look at who you're avoiding. That's a great indicator of where anxiety is surfacing in your life. Who are you avoiding? What conversations are you avoiding? And so we either enmesh or we get cut off. And, and, and I see this in so many ways. So to, to hold in that space where we remaining close to God, close to ourselves, and close to others, especially in times of high anxiety, we need the grace of God for this. And the world does not know how to do this well. And the church doesn't know how to do this well. And yet Jesus is inviting us as his followers to do this well. And, 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 and in a way, it's like, what does it mean to abide with God, abide with ourselves, and abide with one another? And this is really hard. I might have mentioned on, on Sunday um, you know, when 4th of July or whatever, uh, you know, uh, or matters of race comes along, there's four types of people in our church. It's the conservative that when, they, when you think about matters of race, the conservative finds it really hard to name the sins. The progressive finds it hard to name any good. The grateful immigrant says, this place is better than where I came from, so Pastor Rich, you should be grateful. Or there's just the indifferent Christian who says, can we just focus on the gospel? When you get this many different people, and this is not just my com community, this is all reflected in different places all around our nation. How do we maintain a calm presence? And I believe this is the work of formation. Now, for our time today, I'm not going to be able to go all into that there. I did that earlier today for a group of pastors. But I want to name some other ways of how we begin to grow in this area. So one, there's just a formational piece. Self-differentiation, calm presence, remaining close to God, close to others, close to myself in times of high anxiety, doing the good work of self-regulation, doing the good work of prayer, doing the good work of interior examination. This is what's before us. But we also have to get aligned as we think about the nature of race and the nature of reconciliation and begin to identify some of the misunderstandings and definitions. And so I, I see in my conversations with many people, there are lots of misunderstandings about matters of reconciliation. 
matters of race. And there's four that I just want to highlight briefly. Many people assume that reconciliation is possible without justice. And it's important to note the ways that reconciliation can be pursued in a way that just perpetuates injustice. When it becomes just an aesthetic, when it becomes about diversity, when we're no longer talking about what Cornel West said, what justice is, which is love, what love looks like in public. That's a good definition of justice. And so it's easy to assume that reconciliation is possible without justice, and it's not. It's easy to assume that reconciliation means colorblindness. It's very, I, I have many conversations with people in my church context who say, Pastor Rich, I don't see color. And that's nice. <laughs> but God sees color. I mean, there's coming a day, Revelation 7, 9, and um, it, it might not be a stretch to say this that we bring our ethnicity into eternity. He saw from all tribes and people. and It's a good question, isn't it? Do we bring our ethnicity into eternity? God sees it. God treasures it. God celebrates it. And I understand when people who, who say, I don't, see, I don't see color, I understand that, but reconciliation does not mean colorblindness. We often think that reconciliation is equated with diversity. But there are plenty of diverse places that are not reconciled, that are not a new family. Or we think, and this is probably one of the most popular ways of thinking about reconciliation in the church, that we believe that if we just had friendship or just got enough people saved, that this will solve racism. Failing to see that some of the worst racism has come through the church, co-signed by the church, funded by the church. And so friendship, it's a great gift. I'll be preaching about that on Sunday. It's a great gift. Friendship is a gift. Entering into the spaces of others is a gift. But unless we're talking about this from an individual, interpersonal, and institutional way, we're going to circumvent the work of reconciliation. Which makes me think about this question. Should we be talking about conciliation or reconciliation? And I like reconciliation, here's why. Number one, it's a, it's, a, it's a biblical word. But I think we have to get clear on what we mean by it. Because when this nation was founded, there was no conciliation that we need to now reconcile over. But there was a day in the human story, a day in the scriptural story, that the people, humanity, were in loving union with God and loving union with each other. This is the book of Genesis. And so when I think about reconciliation, I'm not thinking about the 1800s or 1700s or 1800s. I'm thinking about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And so I like it, but I do have some ambivalence about that term because it's often cheapened and watered down as it tends to what it means. And so going back to that uh, definition, I believe it was... Uh, by Brenda Salter McNeil, which I'll find in my I notes here in a moment. Uh, I'll come back to that. But reconciliation is really important. Now, a few other words around this. 
To have good conversations around this is to recognize the ways that we see this topic very differently. Michael Emerson, a sociologist at Baylor, wrote a wonderful article. I think everyone should read it. It's, it's, um, it's called The Persistent Problem. Put that on your phone. It's a free article online. Uh, it's great, The Persistent Problem. And what Emerson does is he names the ways that people groups define racism. And it's just important to get on the same page as to how we see it. And so he talks about the individualist and the structuralist way. For the individualist, and he, he broad brushes here, and I, and I think the broad brush is important, and this is what I would say also, that a large percentage of my church who is not white tend to fall into this category as well. To give you like some perspective, our church is probably about 10 to 12% white. Uh, and so... The vast, the lots of people who are not, who see it in the same way. And so what he discovered in his research was that whites tend to view racism as, and here's the phrase, intended individual acts of overt prejudice and discrimination. And so if it's not intended, if it's not individual, if it's not about prejudice and discrimination, then why are you lumping me in? I'm not a bad person. And so to be considered racist, the person must classify a group of people as inferior to others, and then whatever they say or do must result directly from that view. That is, they must mean for their actions to be racist in order for them to be actually racist. He continues that racism is equated with prejudice, wrong thinking and talking about others and individual discrimination, wrong actions about others, against others. And because of the other components of racism's definition, if a person is a racist, is a, is a, it is a master class, a core identity of who the person is, not just some passing act. In short, it defines the person's essence. Which is why to call someone a racist is so offensive for many people. He says that black indigenous people of color would see it more structuralist, in a structuralist way. Now, Again, to be sure, I'm painting with a broad brush here because there are plenty of black indigenous people, Latino people who have an individualist frame for this. But he says that in this case, racism is at minimum prejudice plus power, and that power comes not from being a prejudiced individual, but from being part of a group that controls the nation's systems. Even in a nation that currently has a president defined as black, this is, he was writing during the Obama administration, uh, nearly all senators, representatives, governors, and CEOs, to name a few, are white. This view of racism is called the structuralist definition and stands in stark contrast to the individualist definition. And what I believe we need is we, we, we need to hold on to both realities here. And this is not some messy middle or, or compromising middle here. We have to recognize the ways that sin extends its tentacles within our own individual lives and in the larger institutions and systems that we live within. It's a structuralist way. What I found to be helpful is a guy by the name of George Yancey, he's a professor of philosophy at Emory University. He wrote an article, uh, I believe it was for the uh, uh, New York Times, I believe, a number of years ago and about racism and uh, received tremendous backlash. And so he wrote a book called Backlash. <laughs> and what he was trying to do in his article was trying to show the overlapping ways that 
we see racism at work, but from the perspective of sexism. I want to read you an excerpt because I find it to be illuminating and helpful, especially as a man. He says, what if I told you I'm a sexist? That doesn't mean I intentionally hate women or that I desire to oppress them. It means that despite my best intentions, I perpetuate sexism every day of my life. As a sexist, I have failed women. I have failed to speak out when I should have. I have failed to engage critically and extensively their pain and suffering in my writing. I have failed to transcend the rigidity of gender roles in my own life. I have failed to challenge those poisonous assumptions that women are inferior to men or to speak out loudly in the company of male philosophers who believe that feminist philosophy is just a non-philosophical fad. I have been complicit with and have allowed myself to be seduced by a country that makes billions of dollars from sexually objectifying women. From pornography, commercials, video games, to Hollywood movies, I am not innocent. When we begin to see the ways that we inhabit a world that shapes us, we begin to see the overlapping layers that are our work here. And so how do we think about racism? Derald Wing Tzu, a professor at Columbia, offers a helpful definition that racism comprises attitude, actions, institutional structure, or social policies that subordinate persons or groups because of their color. David Wellman, very simply, racism is a system of advantage based on race. And so the question then becomes, if this is racism, which, by the way, some of the biggest challenges that I've had as a pastor and our community in talking about this has come from two words. How we define two words has either helped us or hindered us. How we define gospel and how we define racism. And so if we're missing out an aligned kind of understanding of what gospel is and an aligned understanding of what racism is, we're going to be missing each other all the time which is why I offer some of these definitions for us to at least begin to get some form of alignment, whether you agree or not, to go, when I'm talking about it, this is what I mean by it. Which begs the question, what's reconciliation? And here's a few ways that I think about reconciliation. One way is that reconciliation is in God's kingdom addresses the soul of a person, the structures of society, and the spiritual forces in unseen realms. Which, by the way... Um, I don't know, in my second book, I talk about powers and principalities. That powers and principalities are evil forces that get attached to individuals, ideologies, and institutions with the goal of three things. Depersonalization, deception, and division. Powers and principalities are at work in the world when those things happen. And so kingdom reconciliation addresses, must address the soul, the structures, and the reality of powers and principalities. And we need a big theology for that. Kingdom reconciliation results in a diverse community that embraces the unique gifts, acknowledges the distinctive sins of their racial, ethnic, social makeup while sharing love and communion under the lordship of Jesus. Or as I said it on Sunday, quoting Dr. Brenda Salton McNeil, reconciliation is the ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. 
And so what I want to do for the rest of my time, I want to take another maybe 10, 15 minutes, and then Tyler and I will have a good conversation. I want to now talk about practices of formation now. What I've given in many ways is framework. Now let's talk formation. How do we grow in this personally? What, what are the next steps we can take? And my hope is not to overwhelm you, but to help you listen to the voice of the Spirit. Might there be one invitation for you tonight on what God wants you to begin to pursue? And so I want to talk briefly about cultivating racial habits that heal. Eddie Glaude, a professor at Princeton, um, wrote a book called Democracy in Black and uh, offers the, a wonderful category of uh, racial habits. And I commend that book because I thought he did a really good job with it. And so I'm borrowing some of his language about racial habits. How do we move forward in this, friends? Well, it, it requires, first of all, the habit of remembering. Of remembering. Which is a good biblical word. We hear all and all, over and over in the scriptures, remember, remember, remember. Memorials set up over and over again in the scriptures. Highlighting God's history of faithfulness. And also highlighting the ways of bondage and captivity. Remember you were once slaves. That's what God tells the people of God in Deuteronomy. And what we need in some capacity, friends, is a growing ability to remember. Where have we been? This is why whenever uh, I, I, when I talked about race one time in our church, I tried to connect it to our genograms. I'm a big fan of family systems theory. And genograms have been really important in formation. And genogram as, uh, is, is, is us recognizing, I think I said this on Sunday, you know, that Jesus lives in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. And, and we have to begin to name the positive legacies and negative legacies that we've received that we often perpetuate. And the legacies that we must resist and repent of. And within the genogram, what you're doing is you are looking back. You're trying to remember or rely on the memory of someone else to help us understand how do we get to the place we're at today as a family unit or as an individual. And the same practice and principle applies to us as we think about this massive topic of race. We can't understand where we are today unless we understand where we've been. And so we have to remember. This also invites us into the habit of incarnational listening. And I, and I say this for this as a community here. It's very easy to get so abstract and to think about this massive topic and the abstract out there. I, I want you to really focus on your community as a whole. The habit of incarnational listening. This is the language that we use in our church around the movements of Jesus, where Jesus in the incarnation leaves his world, enters into our world, and allows himself to be formed by another while holding on to himself. And so if we're going to see healing take place within this community and within Portland, it requires incarnational listening. Thirdly, it requires the habit of lament. You know, our prayers reveal much about our concerns and the degree to which we're concerned about what God is concerned about. And so prayers of lament, offering our grief to God, our anger to God, and lifting mind and heart to God is a really important practice. 
And what I've discovered is that there are lots of Christians who are really uncomfortable with grief. The famous verse that I was given in my Pentecostal tradition is Philippians 4, verse, verse 4 and 6. You know, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. But the same Bible that says rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, has a book called Lamentations. <laughs> and so the question is, which one is it? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Lament. We need the habit of reconciling prayer. I, I love what Coretta Scott King says. When you, when you think about the civil rights movement, it's very easy to focus on the marching and the preaching. But one time she said, prayer was a wellspring of strength and inspiration during the civil rights movement. Throughout the movement, we prayed for greater human understanding. We prayed for the safety of our compatriots in the freedom struggle. We prayed for victory in our nonviolent protests, for brotherhood and sisterhood among people of all races, for reconciliation, and, for, and the fulfillment of the beloved community. Reconciling prayer. How do our prayers move us forward in this? Fourth, or fifth, it's the habit of racial self-examination. And I alluded to this on, uh, on Sunday. How has your family, your culture, our society shaped us to see people? How have you thought about black people and Latino people and First Nations people and white and Middle Eastern, Asian, Asian American, Pacific Island across the board? And there's something really powerful about doing this because whatever you can't name, you're still in some way in bondage to. Which is why if you want to get free from addictions, like one of the best things you could do is begin to name it. I remember doing this exercise with a Korean-American man in our church whose family had a convenience store in Los Angeles in the early 90s that was raided after Rodney King's just, uh, the police brutality that he experienced. And so his family's convenience store was raided multiple times. And so I'm, I, I had about 100 of our leaders do this exercise. And I was kind of walking around the room, like, you know, peeking over people's shoulders. And there was one guy, this Korean-American man, who had everything blank. And I said, hey, man, it was like 10 minutes have gone by. I said, come on, there's got to be something there. And he, and he, and he said, I don't know, there's nothing. And I sat next to him. And I said... Well, you can tell me what, tell me, how did your family see black people? And he did not want to say anything. And so I started saying, say it, name it. How did your family see white people? How did your family, and we, on and on we went. And it was that God was doing something there. His ability to live in truth. To identify the ways he's been socialized. To identify the ways that, the way that he sees others are inconsistent with the ways that Jesus sees them. And so the habit of racial self-examination. Let me get to number six. And I was going to stop here, Tyler, but I'm going to New York tomorrow. <laughs> number six is the habit of renouncing whiteness. What do I mean by that? Willie James Jennings, a theologian at Yale, has talked about 
what is, what is whiteness? It's, it's this ongoing a way of organizing bodies by proximity to an approximation of white bodies. Another way of saying it is the absolute way of viewing and assigning value to the world through the racialized perspective of white normativity. He says this about it, and I think it's really important for us to hear. He says, I am interested in the presence of whiteness in the Western world, especially on the American soil, social and intellectual landscapes. I do not mean the presence of white people. I mean the form of presence whiteness constitutes in its conjuring power. That form of presence carries an ever-expanding white aesthetic regime that teaches us how to see and narrate the true, the good, the beautiful, the intelligent, and the noble around white bodies. The renouncing of it. I remember <clears throat> offering the word white supremacy from our church in 2017. And the way I said it and the humor that I brought around it was not really helpful and I've learned about how to talk about these things in context like this. But these are words that are really important for us to gain a grasp on, to look for truth. Where is there truth here? When I think about something like white supremacy, what is it? This is my working definition of it. It's the noxious, insidious, and unconscious ways that white experience, perspective, and power is prioritized, normalized, internalized, and systematized. There's a scale of it in our culture. And, and again, the scale that I see is that when you look at the spectrum of whiteness as kind of the scale of existence, it's like white on one side, black on the other. High value, low value. And I think we just begin, need to begin to name some of that. H how do I know it's at work in me? Well, whiteness is at work in me when certain neighborhoods are deemed inherently better when white people are present and inferior when they are not. That skin color is viewed inherently as inherently superior the lighter it is. And this is a phenomenon that extends across various cultures now, of colorism. Within my Latino community, I have all the hues in my Latino are, are present. My grandfather is as black as you're going to be. And I have cousins with blonde hair and blue eyes. And it's amazing to see within a place like Puerto Rico how that scale exists there as well. Certain hair types are seen as inherently good while some are seen as inferior. It's at work and white people are inherently seen as more reliable, authoritative, and trustworthy than people of color. It's at work in me when I see the last name of someone and I go, mm, I'm looking for a Jones or a Smith. And this is the air that we breathe and the water that we drink. Number seven. How do we do this? Well, it requires the habit of regular confession, repentance, and forgiveness. To talk about this is fraught with all kinds of complexity, friends, because, again, we're talking about powers and principalities. We're not just talking about a different way of seeing the world. We're talking about powers and principalities. And so we need a regular habit of confession. To talk about this can be awkward. To talk about this means we're going to make mistakes. 
to talk about this man, we're going to have these faux pas. We're, we're just not going to get it right all the time. And so we're going to need a culture of repentance and confession and forgiveness. We're all on the journey together. And if the church can begin to prioritize confession and repentance and forgiveness, what a witness. As a matter of fact, I believe the church needs to lead the way in confession, in repentance, in forgiveness, and in justice. Not injustice and justice. <laughs> Let me enunciate correctly here. And as we give ourselves to this, friends, I believe we open ourselves up just a little bit more to the inbreaking work of the kingdom of God.